Okay. Well, today I'm here with Jason Littlefield, and I am very pleased to be able to have this conversation with you today, Jason. Would you mind starting off by just saying a little bit about yourself and your work for anybody who's not familiar with with you at this point? Sure. Uh, so obviously, I'm Jason Littlefield, and I'm the executive director of Empowered Pathways. I'm also a co-founder of Free Black Thought and a board member for the Institute uh, for Liberal Values. My background is in public education. Uh, I spent 21 years as an educator, and in fact, going back into the classroom uh, this upcoming fall to be a history teacher at a, at a rural high school. So I'm looking forward to that as well. And I also came up with what I call empowered humanity theory as, you know, I don't even really like to use the word as an alternative for what's being used in today's workplace and schools, uh, but as a replacement for the attitudes and practices that we are normalizing and institutionalizing my background in, in that was an SEL, a social and emotional learning specialist uh, for Austin schools from 2014 to 2021. And around 2017-ish, I noticed a big shift, uh, a big grand shift in society, and then also a shift in the attitudes and practices that we were being asked to put forth in the workplace. Um, so I started questioning uh, those, those things that were coming into the system. Uh, I knew they weren't good. I knew they weren't healthy for our social emotional well-being. So essentially from 2017 to 2020, I was questioning SEL from the inside with my own uh, SEL team. In fact, I called uh, one of my supervisors one Saturday in 2018. I was like, look, man, this is not good and it's going to get worse. We really have to address these ideas that, that we're putting forth. And ultimately, you know, I was, oh, Littlefield, uh, who knows? One day you may be prophetic on all this stuff. And we we are still friends. We talk to this day about, yeah, this, this is not a good situation to be in. So, hmm. you know, and then from essentially 2021 until now, I was able to be openly not woke, if you will, because I stepped away. Ultimately, my job description as an SEL specialist, it dissolved and a new job was rewritten. And then that new job description, we essentially had to put forth the ideology. Mm -hmm. And so no longer could I question it from, you know, and, and stay in that system, I was now like, okay, now you actually have to put forth this. So I chose to walk away really without a plan. Uh, and then in the two years of being actively unwoke, uh, the anti-SEL lobby and the strong anti-woke community 
also views me as problematic or a problem. So I've kind of essentially been canceled, if you will, by the, by the woke and the anti-woke over the ideas that I'm putting forth, which I believe are the most vanilla things that we can think about. So I'm happy to be here to really kind of parse things out with where we are right now and the impact that it's having on our well-being. Because the only reason I started questioning this years ago was because I noticed that a culture that prioritizes the group above the individual, it automatically cultivates the, our innate capacities for prejudice. Mm -hmm. So as a society, by emphasizing our group identities and the stereotypes that come along with each group, we're essentially cultivating that human capacity for prejudice towards each other, along with cultivating emotions of shame and resentment and anger, all for this collectivist political goal. So essentially I've seen our world as this way of remaking itself uh, in a way that is negatively impairing our psychological well-being and the relationships between people. So mm -hmm. I've been trying to call attention to that while promoting empowered humanity theory as a set of attitudes and practices that actually decrease the human capacity for prejudice and actually increase and strengthen the neural pathways that are linked to our psychological well-being, mm -hmm. because essentially that's, that's an answer to the prejudice and the bigotry that we are seeing. And it's also addresses the institutionalized, essentially neo postmodern Marxist, whatever you want to call this new philosophy that's entering the schools, the universities and the workplaces, because empowered humanity theory, it also, it, it addresses the kernels of truce that the ideologues weaponize. Hmm. Wow. Well, there's a lot, a lot that you said that I want to ask more about. For sure. I know I, I went off for a, a minute. No, that's great. It, it's, it's, first of all, as a, as an educator for a long time in, in the system, you must have witnessed the change as you, you even talked about it, that you noticed a change in the material or in the, the ideology that was being presented. And I, feel like I observed that as well. My own perspective was that something really shifted and really changed. And then you'll talk with other people who say, no, this was coming all along. And that, you know, the, the discussion about the long march through the institutions and how these seeds were planted long before. And I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on that and, and what it was really, what was the, was it a content change that you noticed in around, did you say around 2016, 2017? What well, around change? 2017, there was a there was a content shift in uh, in the trainings that I was required to go to, and the next year, half of our team 
took place, took part in an equity cohort where they met regularly, you know, essentially it was their indoctrination because after they went through that program of receiving that training, that's when they started to view me as a bad person. So uh, the equity cohort was something that teachers and, and public school. Well, no, just my local okay. 16 member uh, working group went okay. through. Okay. But, you know, back to that, back to the, the other shift, I, I also noticed around 2011 and 2012, a shift of where we were heading. And I was so sure about it. I made the decision to leave the country. Like I, hmm. got, I sold my house, my, my children at the t- I was married at the time and my children were uh, young. I said, I don't want them. I don't want to live in this environment. I don't want to live in what is coming, what is coming down the pike. And that was 2011. Uh, that was 2011 and so 2012. Had, at that point you'd been teaching for about 10 years, not quite about 10 12 years. years. 12 yep. years. Okay. Yeah. And, then and I was something also a, happened then. I was also a, I was also a history major and okay. oh. uh, just student of history. And I knew, a, you know, I studied the Frankfurt school in the nineties. Okay. Uh, so, so you saw these patterns. I saw the patterns and I knew, okay, the patterns are in place. These ideas are in place. Uh, they're, they're well-funded and structured. And there is a, there are also political aspirations of other groups that, that match this. So my plan was to leave the country and eventually find somewhere that was small and remote in the middle of nowhere. And I ended up in China. And then a few months later, I ended up in West Africa. I was like, sweet, this is where I'm supposed to be. And then I was spit back in the United States uh, to become an SEL specialist and to go through the weird, bizarre thing of being canceled by a friend and professional group for promoting human dignity and a desire to strengthen our common humanity. <laughs> that sounds like quite an adventure. And I, it's interesting that in 2011-ish, you were concerned enough that it felt like this. It sounds like it felt like some inevitable pressure coming down and you just needed to get away from it. And what what was it that you were responding to specifically that was that was making you feel like you needed to get out? Well, I knew that my profession, they were basically advancing ideas that were not beneficial to the individual because ultimately it's a collectivist political goal and you're not strengthening the individual for that. I also noticed that we were beginning to put the primary focus on our race, gender, and sexuality, rather than our primary focus on just nation of origin, you know, Mm. and everything that, that went along with that, uh, you know, and at the time my, my children were four, five, uh, five, seven, Mm. 
uh, nine and 10. So they okay. were young enough to preschool get, and elementary age. I'm getting, I'm getting us, getting y'all out. Yeah. I don't so this want... was, you saw this coming through schools and you thought this mm -hmm. is going to influence my kids and I want my yeah. kids to be protected from it. Yeah. Exactly. And so then you saw another shift happen when you came back and you became an SEL specialist. What was SEL when you first were introduced to it and how did it change? So when I was first introduced to it and those that are, are really hardcore uh, students of where the origins of SEL will talk about how it was kind of evil from the get-go if would, you will, would you kind of give an overview of it? Because I, I, feel I don't like I, know. I'll, I'll give an overview okay. I'll, okay. of what it, how it was presented to me, but I just want your audience to know that there's probably a deeper dive into okay. maybe there were uh, some sinister uh, intentions from the origin, but the way that it was presented to me was, and to many others and many others, it's still presented this way, but it's, it's a way of strengthening our self-management skills, our okay. self-awareness skills, our social awareness skills, relationship making and decision making skills. So okay. all of those sound really good and are really important for us. Sounds uh, like teaching people how to get along with one another like and, and manage their own distress and, you know, just be... That's what it's, I mean. That's what I'm kind of hearing is like how to get along in society. Yep. Yep. That's Which doesn't that's, sound on its face like a bad thing. It sounds like the sort of signs you would see in an elementary school classroom that talk about keeping your hands to yourselves and being polite to others. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even even as an adult now, that whenever I'm faced with a stressful moment or a stressful period, I have some tools and skills and, and things that I can follow up on without diving into a negative self-ruminating thinking, uh, you know, I got to get myself up. I got to get out of bed. I got to, I got to face the day. Mm -hmm. I have to be in, in relationship and communication with others. How can I do that in productive ways? So mm -hmm. it, it is, it is that thing. And then around, like I said, 2018, we started to shift and focus our attention on race, gender, and sexuality through this lens of oppressed and oppressor lens. Mm, like okay. those became the conversations and the trainings and the materials was just talking about the world that way and any attempt to like I, I tried for years mainly to just like hey can we all have a conversation about this approach okay can we just have a conversation about the approach and that never happened and i was isolated and excluded and lost friends just for that can we talk about this type situation? So that was part of that shift. And then in 2020, uh, Castle, the collaborative for the academics of social and emotional learning, essentially the 
head organization of SEL, they changed the official definition to one that is this uh, transformative SEL. And one of the links that I'll send you, I'll send you an article that Eric Smith and I co-authored about about that transition from okay. social and emotional learning to what they're calling now transformative, transformative SEL, which is explicitly looking at race and gender those and the stereotypes of the oppressed oppressor that worldview so it's been completely restructured to now advance this other worldview mm-hmm. and you know maybe it's the the intentions of the people putting forth those maybe they think that you know SEL is it's really this good uh benevolent just thing that's beneficial but the actual tools and philosophies being used right now are illiberal ones that mm-hmm. are detrimental to the individual. So it started out just as this be kind to others, learn some coping skills kind of kind of framework that you were were teaching. Be, that's what it be kind inclusive, of inclusive, celebrate diversity, let's all, you know, but so, so that was okay though at first. That sort of that tone was okay, and then it sort of became more DEI. But it was this was creeping in. It sounds like, and not not a hard start to that. And then in 2020, a really hard start. Like we really overtly are changing this, and we're explicitly making it DEI focused. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And because, like you know, I saw it creep up, as you said, in, in my working group, mm-hmm. and I'm sure other working groups at the time saw it creeping up then, but after it had creeped up and been around the ether mm-hmm. for a few years, mm-hmm. uh, then it came clamped down from the top down organization. Like, okay, this is officially what, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, if you're not going to do it this way, then you have to go. Uh, I remember very clearly one of the the very last attempt I made was in 2021 uh, because I said, you know, ultimately this new approach is a rejection of human dignity and the entirety of the enlightenment. Mm. And I was told, it said, well, Jason, it it sounds like you want to go a different direction than we are. Mm. And I was like, I wow. perhaps so. So your working group, were you part of a district? It was a I was. district. And, and so you said 16 members in the working group. Is that right? Yes. I and was so, working in Austin at the time. In Austin. Okay. And so this was within this working group, you, you worked alongside these people for a number of years and tried to talk about this and what was that experience like you said you felt like you were shut down and, and you were oh it was uh, yeah when, when did you start that and what were other people were other people not concerned do you think or were they just unwilling to talk about it it was it was one of the most awkward experiences ever and um i I don't want, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell the story, but I don't want it to be told like, this is just something that happened to me because okay. this is something that 
has happened to a lot of people right. uh, because I know, like, I know if this happened to me, it's happening to a lot of people. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I started speaking out was because I didn't want this to happen to any other groups uh, because I saw it tearing friendships apart. I saw it tearing working groups apart, even families Mm -hmm. for just this uh, really dehumanizing way of viewing the world. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, from 2014 to 2017, the friendships and the bonds and the working, it was the most productive and enjoyable working environment I'd ever participated in. Uh, and then after that shift, I remember I set up a time to talk with one person one-on-one about, Hey, we got to talk about, and, and I was shouted at, uh, and told I need needed counseling about three times in a matter of 10 minutes. And after the third time I said, you know, I said, I'm going to have to dip out. Maybe we can uh, revisit this at a later time. But that was the first time I was like, Oh my God, there is a visceral reaction to just people having conversations about things. So I naturally would, kept trying to push forward and poke forward because I found that so odd, but I noticed that the more, the more I asked, the more I was kind of shunned, uh, isolated or, or, or whatever. Hmm. Um, and I, I did have friends on the team still. Uh, in fact, my, my best friend happened to be the only, black guy on the team. So that was weird in their eyes. Like, how can I have this deep, like spiritual friendship relationship with this dude, but question the idea, but even that didn't prompt conversation. So I've seen how this ideological approach can really grip people, Mm -hmm. uh, and, control groups because uh, other people didn't know how to react or didn't know how to respond because there, there wasn't at the time, there wasn't this national conversation about, okay, something's, something's not right here. Right. Uh, Right. So the onus was on you to bring it up. And as you're bringing this up and are you challenging the anti-racism stuff? And then there's there, the, 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 I I guess just trying to read between the lines here, I'm thinking that you're challenging anti-racism. And if you don't want to address racism the way we want to address racism, it's because you're a bigot and you're a white supremacist kind of, kind of stuff. Right. Right. And I, and I noticed that the way that they were addressing it was Mm -hmm. just talk using critical theory was just talking about how awful the past was. And putting these narratives of these people are good because of this. And these people are bad because of this. And I knew that that cultivated prejudice. So I knew that we're actually creating racism. Like the way that you're talking about it is actually creating the psychological and behavioral basis for real life racism, Mm -hmm. all people against all people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Like even, even if that's not what you want it to do, mm-hmm. but that, that tool, that's what it's doing. The so way you're that saying we're talking, if we're talking about, if we're trying to improve these conditions, the method you're selecting is not going to do that. Right. And it's actually exacerbating the problem. Okay. And if you want to get a little bit deeper, it's doing so for a political objective. So I guess at the end of the day, uh, is that political objective of collectivism of no individual rights and values is, is that important enough to destroy our human well-being and the relationships between people, because mm-hmm. that's what it's, that's what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That focus on the, in, on the group rather than the individual and that focus on what's wrong and what has been wrong and how to call that out. Yeah. Okay. And so you saw this, just this first a shift and then a complete it sounds like replacement of prior SEL teaching with this. The first time I ever heard the the acronym SEL was like 2020, 2021. I'd never heard of this. And I have two daughters who went through the public school system and would have graduated in the, in the 2000 teens, okay. so early 2000 teens, I guess. And so I, I had never heard of this. It was, it wasn't on my radar at all. Um, and then I had a a person from the local school board running for school board, come to my house and knock on the door. And I was asking some questions. I, the critical race theory and critical theory was newly on my mind because I had just been dealing with it in graduate school. And so I was asking some, some questions about that. She says, Oh, we don't teach that we do SEL. And I was like, what's that? She says, social emotional learning. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds kind of good. And so I'm here I am just sort of taking it at face value, not thinking about how and not not having the the sort of framework that I now have for what's happened with a lot of these education institutions and 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 projects and processes that they've been sort of subverted or or even taken over from the inside by the DEI philosophy. But what's really concerning is that you're you're describing a situation where you're in, involved in on the district level in implementation of these policies or, or or development of these policies. And when you're expressing concerns, rather than taking your concerns seriously, you're shown the door. Ultimately, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And my and the things I was concerned about was the social emotional well-being of the students and the adults in that district, because they were putting forth practices that were detrimental to that well-being. And you, and, and so I don't want to jump ahead too much. So if there's something in between, I would love to, you know, please, please help me understand the, the trajectory. But at some point you decided to develop a way of doing, of, of addressing some of these needs that was, that took a different approach. And was that something that you started developing uh, when you were hearing, when, when you were still working at the district? Is that what, what that was? Yes. Okay. Yes. I started, uh, what I now call empowered humanity theory, I started working on it in 2017. Um, okay. Coming from a, because I realized that 
all of the trainings and professional development now were this collectivist political ideology that at the heart of it viewed humanity's flaws, you know, and, and our, basically our liberty to express those flaws, to harm each other. It viewed that as the problem and was working to erode that. So what if there was a framework of ideas that strengthened what is naturally best within all people and tamp down those primitive destructive things that are within all of us like we all have those capacities for prejudice aggression and cruelty mm-hmm. so you know and realizing that we become what we practice you know on that neurological level and the conditions of the environments that we were in the only thing that we really have control over is what we intentionally practice and the environments that we are are building around us and the relationships between people. So essentially empowered humanity theory is just three attitudes and three pathways of practice that cultivate what's best within all of us and what tamps down those capacities. And yeah, I, I worked on it while I was still in there because I was trying to bring those you know, it's not like I was just trying to complain, but I was also trying to say, let's compare these two sets of ideas. Let's let's talk about these things. So, so that sounds it, like you came from an approach that said, I'm going to take on good as as if you're offering on good faith that you want to work on these these issues with that these are really your objectives and I'm going to examine the system that you've put forth in order to address these particular concerns. And when I look at the system that you've created, it doesn't address these adequately. In fact, it creates a series of other problems. So if, if on, if I am to take you at your word that you really do want to address these things, here's an alternative. Here's a different way to do that. That actually addresses your concerns. And that, that supposes that the district or the, castle or whoever's putting these ideas out there really wants to make those improvements. Yes. And, you know, I, I've learned that I don't even uh, castle has proven to me as an organization that they don't want to address these things. Uh, I've been in communication with at least one board member uh, that knows of my concerns and that knows of empowered humanity theory. Um, I'm the reason that they turned off their Twitter comments. Uh, oh, wow. Not, and it wasn't anything ugly. Um, just a matter of we as adults occupying planet earth right now, all of us have some very difficult conversations to have mm-hmm. about what we are putting forward for our future. Mm -hmm. And if we like it or not, that's just where we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an interesting time, but needless to say, they were not willing uh, to engage. And, and they weren't willing to engage in, in, in sort of an intellectual discussion and debate about whether or not they're, materials were meeting their own objectives. They weren't 
from an insider who is working with these materials. True. That mm. is an accurate statement. They were, mm. they were not. It, it is, it is interesting. I, it, it, and it, what you're describing sort of in some ways I can relate very much with that, with encountering this material as a graduate student in a counseling program and saying, okay, if, if we want to have conversations about these things, about inclusivity, about racial discrimination, about marginalization and privilege and these kinds of topics that you want to talk about there. Sure. Let's have a discussion because there's the, there's a whole gamut of human experience and it does involve a lot of those things. There are reasons why people feel they have been either passed over or treated unfairly or, and, and probably group identification has something to do with a lot of those things. And so can we talk about that in a rich and nuanced way, but what instead was being presented was stereotypes and oversimplifications and generalizations and accusations. And yes, that and so it feels very inappropriate. Yeah, that weren't addressing problems. I mean, what you saw in counseling that these new practices were actually making those goals that you wanted to as a counselor, it was detrimental to those goals because these practices are detrimental to all people. And by conquering those specific fields, it's the people within those fields that feel the harshest brunt. So when you mm -hmm. expand that out to all fields and all institutions, you see that, and especially considering that emotions are contagious from person to person, mm -hmm. We are wreaking havoc on the social, emotional well-being of all of humanity. And mm -hmm. what I guess we can call the, the right or the anti-woke mm -hmm. uh, doesn't take into consideration is that just by our simple design of being human beings, we are social, we are primarily social emotional creatures. We were not just driven by a primitive instinct. You know, we are, we are social emotional creatures. So that we need to learn to manage ourselves, how to, how to engage with others that may disagree with us, how to come together and find some sort of common ground because in a free society, that's what it takes. It takes people of differences working together mm -hmm. to ensure our greater and grander freedom. But from 2021 until now, I was rebuked by the people fighting hardest uh, against the ideology. Whereas what I'm saying, what I've been saying is, if we can replace these poisonous ideas in our institutions with a humanity-centered framework that will increase the well-being of all people, why don't we do that? So we can. So you met can, with challenges on both ends. It seems like yes. because and hold on, I have to cough. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. It's like it's super noisy at my house with sirens outside and now I'm coughing. So sorry about that. Um, but it sounds like well, and the the institutions, the educational institutions 
I don't take them at, I, I don't see their proposition being made in good faith. I don't see that they really want to address the issues that they want to address. Otherwise, they would be considering criticisms and alternative ways of doing that. They're not. They're blocking it out and they're presenting things that a fool can see are designed to cause problems and cause social strife. And and so that's a big challenge for your empowered humanity theory because they don't really want something that's going to work. They want they that's not their their be, there's some dishonesty going on there. And then the response to that I has been I know for a lot of people okay, stop trying to teach my kids anything but the school what the school is fundamentally designed to do let's teach them reading writing and arithmetic and keep your uh, social theories out of my uh, my children's education because we no longer trust an institution to teach us the social theories and so then there's a challenge for a theory like what what you're bringing people who are on that like like you say the anti-woke are are reacting really strongly and saying don't and yes. so, and so I could see that that's a challenge. And then I guess, and I, I know you want to respond to that. I just want to ask really quickly, is there a way in which the empowered humanity theory could be seen as not a replacement for those things, but a path forward to help people who have been woke indoctrinated come back from that? I mean, there's a lot of talk about that. We're going to have a generation of people who've been taught this stuff. I mean, I, I just, and I, I've i kind of, I don't like the word woke. It's a stupid word. I use it because it's a shorthand for a lot of things. But I just had a conversation with somebody who just graduated from Antioch University, which is the school that I have been, um, that, that I went to, and I've spent a lot of time in conflict with over this. And this person contacted me because he graduated from the CMHC program, the Crit- clinical mental health counseling program that I was just in just this past May. And he told me, go online and watch the president's commencement address. He he talks about uh, criticisms that the school has faced and he's kind of veiled talking about me. And then he says, we are unapologetically woke. We are woke. And he, he just calls it out. The president of the university is, is using this word. So Anyway, we're going to have a lot of people who've been heavily indoctrinated with this stuff and who are shut down to other ideas. Is there a way in which empowered humanity theory can help to address that, the post-woke? I, I definitely think so. Of uh, you know, let me let me I'll go over the attitudes and practices of uh, with you, and I, I would be curious what your answer to that question would be as well. Uh, so one of the attitudes that I promote is a value-centered identity, as opposed to uh, the intersectional way of viewing identity. You are a blank colored person, so you have these traits. Uh, you are this gender person, so you have these assigned traits, and that's just it. I talk about establishing a value-centered identity, and that is be who you are uh, by according to your core values. Uh, for example, the, the values that I leaned into heaviest for the, for many years were integrity, dignity, and humor. 
Mm-hmm. And throughout the day, you know, I would check myself. Are you, are you, is your thinking in line to your behavior? Uh, whenever I would have a negative thought pop up about myself or about somebody else, I would notice I'm stepping outside of my value system. Uh, and then, you know, like we change over time mm-hmm. and our values change over time. For example, I don't have to lean so hard into integrity and dignity anymore uh, because my situation has changed. Mm-hmm. Those two were really important to me when I was in that hard work, difficult situation, because leaning into integrity it helped me continue to ask the questions that I felt needed to be asked. And even to this day, stay on that path. And then dignity was important so that I didn't do any relational damage or beat myself up uh, when I was being isolated like that. So it was continue to honor the dignity of myself and those around me and then humor, which were still important. Now, I'm leaning heavily into grace, liberty, and humor still. Uh, But those are the things, those are the key values that drive my interactions with myself, my interactions with others, uh, in person, online, and so on. So develop that valued-centered identity. Mm. And then uh, another attitude is a dignity lens, our interactions, not with just ourselves, but with others is to honor the dignity of each other. And Mm -hmm. by doing so, you know, dignity is one of those big words that you ask a thousand people, they're going to come up with a thousand different directions, but I talk about it in a, in a particular way. And that's parsing out the human from the being, you know, because after all we're human beings. So what is, what does that mean? Uh, Our human is the combination of our bio- biologies and our personalities. What you see and who you're interacting with, that's that's the human. And every single one of us on this planet are different. Mm-hmm. However, beneath that, beneath our biologies and personalities, we're all profoundly interconnected by our beings. And all the beings on this planet share two distinct qualities, and that's the desire to avoid suffering and the desire to alleviate suffering when we encounter it. Mm. So by having that dignity lens means recognizing that beneath what we see and hear, we are all profoundly interconnected, part of the same human family across time, across cultures, that that's how interconnected we are. Focus on that with our interactions and we, we strengthen that attitude by engaging in practices that celebrate our common humanity. You know, how many times in a day can we find commonalities with somebody that may be a little bit different from us? Mm. How many times can we, can we reach across and make those quote unquote cross group connections and authentic relationships with people? And so then I, I know people will want to challenge the point about other about every person wanting to alleviate suffering when they encounter it. I know there will be some people who will hear that and say, no, not everyone. There are definitely people who have malintent and don't want that. What do you, what do you think about that? There is is it just better to assume the best and work as if 
there may be, there may be those people, uh, you know, there, I'm sure there are some people that that aspect of their personality mm-hmm. and maybe biology, because maybe there's some sort of imbalance there, but those, and that being part is trapped, uh, or can't express itself or has been corroded or but it's still there. Okay. It's still, it, you may so you not still see assume it. that and treat them as if. Yeah. And treat others as if, okay. And you don't have to take abuse from people. Honoring another person's dignity does not mean that you violate your own. Uh, okay. It means that you know, which people to set firmer boundaries to, you know, which people to stay away from and you know, how to respond when you're in a situation to where your dignity is being violated. Mm. You know, it's, it's not about being soft and passive. It's about Mm. being aware. And, you know, I guess also there has to be this element of humility that, and just recognizing that nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows you know, how somebody else is going to respond. And I can't control how other people are going to respond, but Mm -hmm. the only thing I can control is my actions and how I'm going to respond to others. Mm -hmm. So if I can respond in dignified ways, that's, that's how I'm going to do so rather Mm -hmm. than me seeing you as a good or a bad person. Mm -hmm based on what your biology tells me, uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to assume you're a good person because the thing that I don't see is that we are connected. Mm. Okay. So the values, values, based identity, the dignity, the dignity lands, and then, uh, prioritizing mindsets that value or that prioritize, uh, inquiry and compassion, over those mindsets of fear and judgment. Okay. Because we are, we're kind of wired in a way to work, to respond with judgment or fear. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just part of that primitive wiring that kept our ancestors alive and keeps us alive today. But in the modern world, fear and judgment uh, tend to limit our own potential. They can limit, relationships and they can do damage. And if you think about it, fear and judgment are the praying are the main drivers for racism and bigotry and hatred of people. So whenever we notice that we have these thoughts pop up, how can we replace those thoughts with maybe a thought of compassion, maybe Mm -hmm. what we're seeing. And of course, this is in situations to where your physical safety is not threatened Mm -hmm. because when we're, we're in situations, cause I know somebody out there is like, well, what if, what if somebody's coming at you with a, with a hatchet and an ax and a machine gun and a, and a whip? Well, you know, uh, but anyway, I digress. Sorry whenever we can prioritize, you know, compassion, maybe this situation, there's what we're seeing and experiencing. There's some underlying suffering. Mm -hmm. So, or maybe I can get some information. 
you know, we, we always hear people jump to conclusions or, oh, I totally misjudged that situation. So whenever we notice, how can we stay in that moment and practice and disrupt those things? So, and, and that's uh, strengthened by engaging in practices that build kindness and compassion for self and others. Mm-hmm. So kind of circling back and going back to that idea of we are what we practice. How many times in a day can we engage in practices that build awareness and equanimity? How many times can we engage in practices that celebrate our common humanity? And how many times in a day can we practice kindness and compassion for self and others? Hmm. And the research of Richie Davidson suggests that whenever we do frequently engage in those practices, we're actually strengthening the neural circuitry that is associated with our psychological well-being. Hmm. So it's like I said, when you really listen to it, it sounds very vanilla and common sense, but it's been rebuked and rejected by the most vocal of the ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually, uh, I've, I've had one school district in Maryland. I'm currently beginning year number two of working with them to make empowered humanity theory, the basis for how they operate as a district. They, because they see the value. One of the other, other things I heard you talk about how there's that group of parents that don't want you teaching their kids, you know, anything but school and this and that. Well, my focus is mainly on adults and Mm -hmm. developing these attitudes within the adults in our system so that they can get their, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. How many times I'll, I'll get my kiddos to be kind to each other. I'll encourage them to be kind. Mm -hmm. I'll encourage them to find calm whenever they feel a little dysregulated Mm -hmm. without having to teach and do something different. So Mm -hmm. it's really just kind of this, just a very slight shift in what we're doing, Mm -hmm. but with intentionality. It sounds like a course correction. Yeah. That's, you know, I was, I was, just thinking, I, I tell people, it's like people are standing, looking this way, and I just want to come up and put my hands on their shoulders and just turn, just <laughs> turn a little bit this way. Yeah, it's not a big change, but the whole perspective and the whole future is going to be different with just that slight shift, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're when you're talking about compassion, one of the things that came to my mind was this idea that part of what critical theories have done is to hijack a person's sense of compassion. And you know, we talk about weaponized empathy. And what what seems to me to be happening is this really narrow spectrum of like directed compassion. So there's there's an a, a complete like lack of it's it couldn't be less compassionate the way that one views those who would disagree but ultimate compassion directed in a certain area is kind of what's lying underneath of some of it it's such an outpouring of how could you how could you even say these things that might hurt the person who's experienced hurt 
hypothetically you are. And so it's, it's a, it's a very like bifurcated thing like here. And so what I'm curious about how you see that and, and how empowered humanity theory is different. I think empowered humanity theory is different because it doesn't limit, there's no limitations on compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no lens or filter of which these thoughts or actions have to pass through to see if they are compassionate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've also noticed there is a rejection of kindness from the critical social justice world. They mm -hmm. openly say mm -hmm. kindness isn't good enough anymore or kindness is white supremacy. So it's, essentially acts of kindness are dying off of atrophy because they're not, they're not being encouraged and mm -hmm. they're not being done or they're being done through this lens of social justice. But whenever things are fed through that lens, they don't become what they are anymore. You, you know, mm -hmm. there is no, pure, raw, compa human compassion through a critical social justice lens. Mm -hmm. Like if, if your primary way of viewing the world is through that critical social justice lens, then ultimately you reject our common and shared humanity. Mm -hmm. You reject the notion that we are profoundly interconnected. So the, mm -hmm. The biggest conundrum is for people to figure out is what their primary view is, you know, is, is the primary view. Are we different creatures that deserve different rights according to our biology? And is that the best way to design systems for our species? Or are we all profoundly interconnected? regardless of what we see on the outside, regardless of our beliefs, but we are profoundly interconnected on this planet and we're only here for a moment, a moment in time. Should we work together or should we tear everything down and hate each other? Mm -hmm. To me, it's simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it's a nuanced take on collectivism. It's not collectivism the way that the critical theorists are, are picturing it. It's a more, it's more of a fluid um, perspective. It sounds. And I understand the, I, I understand the reactionary position of people who are, who have been concerned about the ideologies that we're, we're dealing with and the social, uh, cultural revolution, whatever this thing is that we're, we're in the middle of, people react to that and they want to push back and punch back and react in a in an aggressive and defensive way towards it. And I, I, I think that's that seems a very natural response to what feels like an attack, attack on your values, on your on yourself, on your children, and yet resisting that urge to become to be in, embroiled in that kind of conflict to counterattack 
Of course. You're offering a different thing. What you're you're saying is this is a different way to approach it. It's a more gentle approach that says we're not going to attack it. We're just going to adjust it and adjust ourselves. Sort of. Uh, correct me, please. Help me to find the words. What? It's also like this is just a series of practices and things that we can do, even if that ideology wasn't being done. Like, even mm -hmm. if that wasn't even around, yeah, these are some things that we can do because anytime you have more than two people in a group uh, or a room, there's a diverse group. And yeah. the more people you add and the longer they're together, the likelihood for conflict or things to get wonky increases, right? right. So yeah. one of the keys is one of the uh, keys for success for each group, be it a, a couple or a nation is to have a shared, at least one shared value and shared understanding. So the idea that, you know what, let's treat each other with dignity. Let's agree to treat each other with in this house or in this school or in this workplace, we're going to treat each other with dignity. And when we step outside of that, we're going to talk about it. We're going to, we're going to fix that and address that. So we don't do that again. Mm -hmm. These are the standards that we're going to hold ourselves accountable to. Mm -hmm. And as a human, you're going to be prone to think these awful things about yourself and about each other because that's your brain just trying to keep us alive, keep you alive. There's things that you can do to correct for that. You're going to, you're going to jump to conclusions because that that's how that that's how you're wired. Uh, but you also have this part of your brain that's responsible for logical thinking, for rational thinking, and even moral thinking. So you can do all of these things, but there are some tricks to the trade. Uh, whenever we get angry, whenever we feel that fear, we can recognize, okay, is this a time for me to push through with inquiry or compassion? How is just being mad going to work? Because... One thing that I've studied about social groups and social movements is that they are only successful if they are for something, not mm -hmm. just against. And right now there's two very vocal sides that are against things. Mm -hmm. There's a side mm -hmm. that's vocally against racism and bigotry and hate. And there's another side that's very vocal against the ideology. Mm -hmm. But if, I've been trying to get capture, you know, if we can capture 86% of the people mm -hmm. that probably value human dignity and value compassion and value liberty and living in a free society to come together and be intentional about the attitudes that they're practicing and what they're putting forth, then maybe we can turn things around. But Right now, there's two very vocal groups that are against things. And, and meanwhile, it's the social emotional well-being of people that's paying the ultimate price because most of society is living in this fear and judgment-based cycle thinking about mm -hmm. themselves, about each other, and about the world. And when mm -hmm. we are trapped in that state, 
we're not accessing that prefrontal cortex. We're not able to work together to solve the problems that we want to solve. Mm -hmm. You know, every single moment that we're awake, we're practicing a myriad of things. Mm -hmm. So why not be intentional about practicing the things that make us the very best that we can be? Those are, that's kind of what I'm mm -hmm. suggesting. And I am, uh, hopefully by September, a book will be out that really it's meant to, to get through in a couple of hours, mm -hmm. uh, just this overview of empowered humanity theory, but there's also going to be journaling questions and some meditations and essentially over a hundred different practices that people mm -hmm. can return to and engage in to really make this way of thinking and being and interacting with the world um helpful because i call it you know a framework for an empowering and dignified life well it's really noble and i i'm very interested in hearing more about it and reading and knowing about your exercises and something that as you were talking about the social and emotional well-being of people paying the price it occurred to me the irony and that it's very 1984 that we're using something called SEL to undermine the the SEL basically. Um, yeah. And and I can understand again coming back to this idea of the the two sides and the the anti just being against. I can really understand and I actually feel in myself that oppositional that it will how like that when you're being treated that way when you have somebody coming in and here here this is for your own good but you can clearly see that this is not there's an anger that rises up and you want to oppose that and you want to fight that and and there's to some extent that's appropriate because you need to be able to challenge things when they're not right but what you're describing is as a process and it's a way of thinking and it's a it's um it it does offer something that one can do to actively push out with love against the the aggression on both sides of this sort of yes. this sort of divide. Yes, not, there's. I really uh, like it. I really think it's it's very noble and beautiful, and it does offer something positive. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And you know, it 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 does and. The more, the more of us that can be for human well-being and for the liberty of people for future generations and create this culture of joy and something different than what we're having, then we can create that movement as well. Mm -hmm. Just as there is a movement built on hate and destruction right now, we have the ability to do something different. So that's why I'm putting forth this set of ideas. I'm like, they, maybe we could try this. Uh, let's, let's shift this way and see what happens. Well, to react with an anti stance to, to something that's anti, there's this aggressive stance. If we can say that what they're saying that they're doing with their programs, with their DEI is clearly not achieving the stated purpose. It's for a different purpose. And if we can look at the actions and say the purpose is for division, then to react by 
by playing into that division and becoming angry is to actually achieve the goal of the program that you're mad at in the first place. And so this is, I think, a really refreshing perspective. And I'm curious as to whether you're optimistic at this point. How do you, as opposed to where you were in 2011, when you felt like I got to get out of here, how do you feel about where we are right now? I am optimistically black-pilled, if you will. I have made the personal decision to move out into the middle of nowhere and to just be positively involved locally while still trying to get a message out uh, across the nation. But I know I've... I've spent the past six years uh, really trying to push this message out. And it's, it's been, uh, there's been some stalwart there, which is another reason why I decided to go ahead and, and write a book and get some things out there more concrete in people's hands. So I hope that that uh, does transpire something. And I also know that I tend to say things and bring things up a few years before uh, we're ready to talk about and discuss them. So hopefully that the world is catching society is catching up with the, the need to address these problems in compassionate, logical, uh, pragmatic ways. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think that's an interesting way to describe it, you know, optimistically blackpilled, but I like, I like the description and, and I'm, I hope that there's reason for some optimism, but I see that you're also saying you have to, you have to partition yourself away from some of the things that are happening right now. Yes. I've, I've chosen to not be too vocal about the problems that we're seeing and what's, what's happening. Uh, I did that for a while and I noticed there's no really traction of me calling attention to things because it, it appears that we live in a culture that just wants to call attention to how awful things are rather than come together and figure out how to create this shift. So I'm just wondering if maybe we're just collectively uh, in our angry phase and maybe eventually some of that anger will, will wane and people will begin to see that we've been falsely divided and we've been fed a bill of goods and our most positive sensibilities of compassion and they have been weaponized for something else. So maybe eventually there will be this level of awareness. Uh, actually not maybe eventually, eventually there will be, uh, mm. it may not be in our generation. I hope it would be in our generation, but you know, I, I think that in the end human freedom reigns. Uh, that's one thing that our species has showed no matter how many times you try to, keep us down, uh, even though you may temporarily do freedom always wins in the end. So that's a reason why I feel optimistic that 
I may not see it in this lifetime, but eventually that spirit of liberty and unity and the desire to actually live an empowering and dignified life that we learned from previous generations. We know the things that make us do good things and that make us do not so good things. So mm -hmm. eventually I'm optimistic. Yes. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you very much for having this conversation with me. And where would you like to direct people to follow your work? Is there a website or um, social media that you have out? Uh, on Twitter, I'm Jason, the T-H-E-E -E, human. And you can check out the work of empoweredpathways.org and also check out uh, what's coming out of Free Black Thought as well. Yeah, we didn't even get into that. So that I'm, I was interested in hearing about that, but maybe we can talk about that. In yeah, the future we can sometime. do that. We can do that another time for sure. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. You too.